This is the Power Producers Podcast, where we are refining and redefining the sales game. Rule number one is you have to believe in yourself. You're the only one who doesn't think you belong in this appointment. The prospect has already validated your existence by scheduling time with you. Get it through your head you belong here. Go in there, crush it, and close the deal. A place where sales professionals can come to learn from other sales professionals and thought leaders that have mastered their craft. The difference between a good salesperson and a best-in-class salesperson is only two minutes. By spending an extra two minutes on what you might think is a mundane task in the sales game, you separate yourselves from the pack, you grow your book of business, you close more deals, and you retain your accounts. As well as their peers who are still striving for perfection to achieve their why. I have a wife and four kids. Failure is not an option. Real sales professionals. Real stories. Real results. It's no different than being a professional baseball player. You can't be a one-trick pony. You have to be a five-tool player in order to succeed in this game. This is the Power Producers Podcast. Production redefined. Are you ready to feel the power? Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Power Producers Podcast, where we are refining and redefining the sales game. Today, we have the author of Negotiate Like a CEO, Mr. Jotham Stein with us. And we're going to break it down however he wants this thing to go. But this guy's got the secret sauce and we're bringing it to you. Jotham, what's up? Uh, well, everything, uh, everything hopefully goods up. And thanks for having me on your show, uh, uh, David and Kyle. Absolutely. I don't want to make you nervous, but 20,000 commercial insurance agents across the country are hanging on your every word for Mm -hmm. the next little bit. So before we get into the book and kind of what you do, why don't you give everybody the 10,000 foot overview of your background history, and then we'll we'll just dive right into it. So I grew up uh, back uh, on Long Island and uh, came out to uh, California many moons ago. Uh, to Stanford Law School. After that, uh, I uh, went into my own practice. I'm a lawyer, practicing lawyer. I have offices in Silicon Valley, uh, in Chicago, and in New York, and I'm licensed in some other places as well. And uh, for more than 25 years, I've been representing entrepreneurs, executives, C-suite executives, employees of all levels, certainly uh, um, sophisticated sales uh, individuals, uh, in their mostly in their personal relationships with their companies as entrepreneurs, those who are starting companies um, with uh, respect to investors uh, and with respect to each other when they're doing their own deals. So I've been doing this for more than 25 years and I wrote a book uh, uh, to uh, basically help everybody to uh, protect themselves in their own employment relationships, in their, in their personal relationships with their companies, uh, in entrepreneurial situations when companies negotiate with each other. And um, and uh, that's the topic of the book, which is essentially protect yourself if you have any leverage at all in any negotiation. Oh, good deal. So let's dive in, man. What does it mean to negotiate like a CEO? It means to do what most CEOs do at the beginning of their relationships in employment or in the beginning of their relationships in an entrepreneurial situation where they're raising money, and that is to protect themselves. So most entrepreneurs because they have leverage, I'm sorry, most CEOs, because they have leverage, protect themselves on day one. So they negotiate 
their employment agreement. They negotiate their severance, essentially, their exit package on day one, because they hope everything is going to go well. The CEO hopes they're going to build this new company or a company they've been asked to run and build it and build it and build it. It's going to grow and grow and everything's going to go well. But sometimes things don't go well. And so they've negotiated essentially their exit plan on day one. And that's what it means to negotiate like a CEO. So every one of your commercial agents listening, if they have a relationship with some other entity, a company that employs them or a, um, a company for which they're an agent, they would want to have their protection in case things don't go well on day one um, so that they're, they would have a smooth transition if things don't go well. And I want to say we all hope things go well, but that doesn't always work out that way. It doesn't. And if you're a listener of this podcast, that's not the first time you've heard that either. Right. Because we talk about it all the time when you're going to go, you know, some of the best HR advice I got was from the VP of a fortune um, fortune 500 company, actually fortune 100 company who told me that you need to negotiate your exit upon your entrance, because that is the one time in that transaction where emotion can be completely removed. Nobody's upset with anybody. Nobody's accusing anybody of everything of, of anything. And all of that goes out the window and it becomes part of, of your negotiation before you ever take a job somewhere. And that way you have it out of your way. Look, you're right. Everybody hopes it's going to go well. And many times, People go get a job and they're there for the rest of their lives, right? Until they retire. But how many times is that really true? Right? How many times does that actually say, happen? Where not I mean, very I often. Own, yeah, I own my company. So I'm I really don't have a whole lot of options. I'm not going to go anywhere else. But for the majority of the people out there, I mean, especially those of you that are not agency principals, but are producers, this kind of gets into what we talk about with understanding your the, the, the succession plan of your agency, the equity uh, possibilities and potentials for you to get a piece of the action and all of that. I can tell you right now from firsthand experience, you better negotiate that on your way in the front door because the last time you want to have that conversation is when the agency catches a little traction, starts making money, and all of a sudden there's dollar figures tied to that equity. Then all of a sudden people aren't really good at holding their word like they were on the handshake originally. So I think this is going to be a lively discussion. You should replay what you just said for all of your listeners, because that happens all the time. People make all sorts of deals, but when there's real money involved, when the company starts to take off, whether it's equity or commission plans, whatever's there, there's always somebody, not always, because sometimes it really works out and some people are as honest as the day is long. But, but a lot of times <laughs> somebody decides in their mind, hey, the other guy's not worth anything. He really isn't worth that what, what it was to build this company and they force you out or cheat you out. And the way you protect yourself is exactly right on day one when there's leverage because somebody wants to do a deal with you. Somebody wants to go into a partnership. Somebody wants to hire you. So everybody out there should listen to what you just said because it happens all the time. I, I've been doing this for more than 25 years and I see it over and over and over again. Well, I've got to believe one of the objections you would get, and I'm just guessing here, would be, oh, but we're just starting out, or I don't have the money to do that. People, you're not talking about small change, right? Let's just say that you get the opportunity to go work in an agency as an equity partner, and let's just say that that equity is only 5%, that you, you're you a 5% partner in the firm. Based on the way VCs are coming in and gobbling up agencies right now and the multiples that agencies are getting, it's not unlikely that your boss is going to have a 10, 20, even $40 million exit. Do the math. 10, 10 million at 5% is $500,000. If that's not enough to get you excited, 
Let's move to 20, 20 million. That's that's a million dollars. And what, what what might cost you a thousand, a couple thousand in legal, let's just say twenty five hundred bucks in legal fees or whatever it is. I don't even know what it would cost. It's ludicrous to think that you wouldn't want to make sure you have that stuff ironclad. I have a suspicion, though, and I'm going to be interested in what you have to say about this. I don't think it's the actual employees that are going anywhere to work. I think it's the the places they're going that that don't have the um, interest in solidifying this, right? It's easy to say, hey, is a recruiting tool, but we're going to do this, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, and then they never execute on it. It never happens. That happens sometimes. So you could say, is it is it people get so busy and they don't focus, and then at the end of the day, when the thing is worth a lot of money, they decide, oh, well, everybody everybody who was around me didn't really help me that much. They're really not yeah. worth half a million or a million dollars. Or is it that they're Machiavellian in the beginning and they and they don't want to, um, you know, provide everything because, you know, it's easy to talk about things orally, but it's hard to prove an oral contract. They're just as enforceable yeah. if you can prove it. Hard to prove it when the at the end of the day when there's a swearing contest uh, or somebody's forcing you out. Uh, but this happens all the time at that beginning. If you spend the money in the beginning, um, it can be sometimes the cheapest thing you ever did in your entire career. Um, because on the back end, when things become valuable, I have to tell you, that doesn't happen all the time, obviously. I've been doing this for a long time. But sometimes the wrongdoer is the college buddy. Or sometimes oh, yeah. the wrongdoer that's forcing you out. The best friend. wedding. So, yeah. Hey, sometimes um, the wrongdoer is your own father. <laughs> unfortunately. Just throwing, that out th- yeah, just throwing that out there from personal experience. <laughs> So unfortunately, some of the worst fights are not only college buddies and people stood up at the wedding, but family fights, you know, partnerships, brother and sister yeah. go into partnerships, brother and brother, and, and it doesn't always work out. Listen, we all know many times it does work out and there are lots of great stories, but I can tell you from 25 years of experience, unfortunately, sometimes the wrongdoer is sitting right in your family when it's a family partnership. You get that deal done in the beginning, you get your contract in the beginning, people are going to t- typically honor it. And, I'm pretty uh, sure that's how like 98% of the 2020 episodes start. And it's Say like, it's all, I, said, I said, I'm pretty sure that that's, that's how like 98% of the 2020 episodes start. Like it's always somebody's relative that, you know, had some sort of business transaction that went south and then they ended up getting murdered. Hopefully nobody gets murdered here, but it's, it's, it's great. I mean, it, it, it does happen. So, I mean, it, it totally makes sense to handle that on the front end. Yeah, definitely my recommendation. I mean, that's the whole point of the book, right? To give you the tools to be able to negotiate. On the so how, how did the book, you know, come about? Obviously you have a ton of experience and, and, you know, was it just people kept asking you questions and you're like, I need to write a book or like, you know, how did that all start? So it's actually two reasons. After 20 odd years, I decided, you know, I've seen all this stuff. And even though employment, even though um, um, selling, even though uh, careers, even though building companies are really part of us, right? We spend so much time doing it. So many people don't know what they need to know, right? They go into these relationships and they don't know that they should negotiate on day one. Or if they do, and, 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 uh, and David was just talking, for example, about the venture capitalists coming in and funding companies and so forth. There are lots of things they don't know, like liquidation preferences, cap tables, and so forth. And I decided, um, well, I try to literally try to help people by writing the book about uh, that would that would tell everybody what they need to know, whether they're going in as an employee, whether they're going as a contractor to a relationship, or whether they're forming their own business or negotiating for their own business. So that was one reason. 
Um, and the other is to have a good time writing the book. So uh, I actually uh, put in 59 fictional stories, but they sort of, they're stories that sort of repeat themselves, fact patterns that repeat themselves. So I went to the Pete's Coffee House and I made up lots of characters and, and put them in. And um, in fact, one of them is called, there's 59 of them. They underscore everything that I've written about. And that was a lot of fun writing. And uh, cause I could make up characters, whatever I wanted to and 59 different stories, 59 sort of sets of characters. That was fun. And uh, like one of the stories, for example, is called shortchanged. And what's that about? That's about uh, two lawyers talking and they don't have to be lawyers. A lot of these, a lot of these stories have nothing to do with lawyers, but they're two lawyers talking about um, um, what happened when one guy filed a lawsuit against another, because his, his client, the mythical client, uh, was shortchanged in a commission transaction, which I can't tell you how many times that happens. People get cheated out of commissions or the, or the plan they've written, um, the document they signed is, is vague and they essentially get screwed. And so this is about one lawyer who's smart enough to knows, okay, if I file a claim in this state for a commission, because they're not paying the commission, we're going to get attorney's fees as well. And the other lawyer in this story calls up and says, okay, I got the message. And, and this sometimes ha has ha happens. I mean, even big companies, they pull off these, uh, they shortchange you on commissions. Uh, happens like all the time. So that's a story that that the 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 the, the uh, nonfiction part of that is li is living and dying by commission and bonus plans. There's a there's a section in the book on that. And so um, you know, I, I, living and dying by by commissions uh, by commissions and the bonus plan is the if you will nonfiction true part that I wrote. Then I got to write a story along with it. So I did that sort of 59 different times in the book. And um, so I had a good time writing it and, and it, whoever reads it will be, it'll be with them the rest of their lives. Cause it'll help them assuming they read it, right. If they just buy it and don't read it, then they're not going to go very far. But um. Well, sadly, that's what happens sometimes, right? You know, we have the best intentions. That's why a lot of them have the seven habits of highly effective people sitting at the top of the dusty stack <laughs> still has dust on it. We can, hey, we can only lead him to water, Jotham. I can't force him to actually execute on the information, no matter how much sense it makes. So let me ask you this. I mean, you're talking about fictional stories. Let's drive home this point. Like, what's what's the worst of all of the all the situations you have in the names have been changed to protect the innocent or otherwise? You know, what what's the worst case scenario for everybody? The worst case scenario uh it depends on what they're doing. But one of the worst case scenarios, let's say, is the entrepreneur situation, let's say, takes in outside investors into their company uh, and uh, they build their company and then they get forced out before uh, their metaphorical baby. They spent this time and energy, sometimes 24 hours a day, 18 hour days, day after day after day, and they are forced out before uh, realizing the value of their equity. This is what you were just talking about before. The worst of those circumstances is the people that get fired by the person who stood up at their wedding or by their father in, in your case. That's, that's pretty bad too. Those, because those involve not only cheating somebody out of money, uh, often equity, sometimes commissions, but it also involves a, a terrible um, emotional impact not just getting fired, not just getting forced out, but getting forced out by a relative or getting um, screwed by your person who stood up at your wedding. So that it's, I always feel bad for those people because they had suffering an emotional um, destruction as well. And, and a questioning of why did I have this? Why did I trust this person? Right. And not just why did I trust this company, but why did I trust this person? So those are the, the saddest for me. Or I have to believe, um, you know, 
I'm thinking like most entrepreneurs and I'm an angel investor. I've got that's invested in quite a bit of insure tech stuff. So I'm pretty familiar with how this stuff works, but I have to believe it's also pretty bad. If you go in and raise money, like most entrepreneurs, where's the first place they go? family and friends. And then what happens when you get far enough along that you can actually bring institutional money in, but you never explained how you get diluted if you invest in a seed round. And now all of a sudden, everybody that you trust the most that's closest to you essentially gets screwed over in many cases without voting rights. You know, they're not, they they end up having um, non-preferred shares or, I mean, we could go for days on the different things that could happen, but I mean, I think that's a realistic problem as well. And I, I bring that up because there are a lot of people that listen to this podcast that are either already in InsureTech or they're entrepreneurial agents that are looking about making taking a, um, an invention that they have and acting on it. You need to be really careful with this stuff and understand how to set it up from the beginning. It's not as easy as just asking Ann Irma for, you know, a thousand bucks or whatever. I mean, you need you need to make sure that you're protecting the people that truly are investing in you, both from a familial and relationship standpoint, as well as financial. Sure. And that 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 dilution happens all the time. But you so you have to you're an angel investor, so you know these things, right? You, even angel investors need to protect themselves against the later the later preferred investors that are coming in because they they want everything. The later investors, right? The institutional investors, venture capitalists, private equity investors, and so you need to protect yourself against them, just as does the person who's starting the company um, needs to do that. So, for example, if you have people that are inventing things that want to create a company around what they invented, and they're taking in investors. You better read my book so you understand like what a liquidation preference is or what a cap table is or how you could get forced out because you didn't control the board of directors. There's all sorts of things you need to know. Plus, unfortunately, you were talking about earlier about lawyers. Um, you need to have some either a lawyer or some good advisor uh, with you. You could be a wizened old guy that's done it a million times before because there's stuff in those documents Nobody ever likes to read the documents. There could be stuff in those documents that could really hurt you. Even if you wind up owning more than half of the company, you might have no control over it. So there's ways to do that. And, and you want to be protected anyway. You're de- anytime you're dealing with venture capitalists, private equity individuals, sophisticated investors, um, somebody who you're going into business with. So it's not just a family relative. It's actually everybody out there. And if you protect yourself, you'll be good. Or alternatively, you'll, you'll, you'll go in with your eyes wide open right? You'll know the potential downside. And, and if it happens that way, you could say, you know, I knew it and I took that risk. But you can't take risk in a good way, like your name's Florida Risk Partners, right? You need to have to have full information. Well, you don't have, if you're going and starting out a relationship with a, an angel investor or a sophisticated investor or a private equity guy or venture capitalist, you don't have full information. You need to have full information. So I'm using liquidation preferences as one of the, one of the key things you need to know. There's a bunch of others including the documents. Otherwise, you're negotiating uh, at, at a disadvantage. You, and, and, and that's not, you can't judge your risk that way. And, and, and that happens all the time, over and over again. And what you described about the sort of friends and family, sometimes it really works out, especially with the unicorns, everybody does really well. But a lot of times they get diluted. And, and, and you know, you could talk to, you know, have a beer or something with a venture capitalist, and they'll, they'll be telling you that many of those early investors uh, don't do so well in these transactions, right? Because they they get they they do okay, but they don't do so well because for the risk they've taken because because they get diluted so badly. 
Yeah, they're taking all the risk. I mean, they're the reason that the company was able to stay afloat long enough to get to the next, that next level. It's insane. That's why I always want to be able to have a board seat if I'm going to make an investment, at least if not on the board of directors, the advisory board, but I preferably want to be on the board of directors and have voting rights so that I can, I may not control it, but as an investor, I want to have my voice heard and do what I can to, to try and, and protect myself. Right. If you're sitting on the board as an investor, you have a huge amount of power because you don't have to agree with everything. And so there's all sorts of leverage you would get as a result, which is the smart thing. From the other side of the, uh, the, 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 the table, though, the entrepreneur um, loses control of his company when there are too many investors or people that, he, that aren't loyal to him or her. So, And there's a dynamic that goes on there, right? There's all because you're the, the person building the company has to sign contracts with the investor like yourself, giving up a certain amount of power. The issue is how much and are you fully informed when you're giving up that power, when you're doing that negotiation? And listen, you've done it a lot of times, so you know all these concepts, but the person on the other side um, needs to be educated. Otherwise, they're not negotiating well with you. Yeah, and I can assure you 100% of the time, the institutional money is going to get that stuff. I, I look at it like this, man. If you, it, And it blows my mind. But if you walk into a casino to play blackjack. To my knowledge, it's one of the only things you can do where they tell you exactly what your best chances are of winning. They give everybody a card that says, if this, then this. 100% of the time. And if you follow that, mathematical theory says that over a 1,000 hands, you've got about a 50-50 shot. It's plus or minus 1%. You've got about a 50-50 shot against the house. It's your best opportunity to win in any game period. How many people follow that card to the T? Not one. They go, I mean, a lot of people very, that don't very, know that it exists. Yeah. Very, very rarely is anybody going to go in and do that. Why? Because they don't understand that it, mathematically it makes sense to hit a 12 against a two. They just don't get it. A hard 12 against a two makes all the sense in the world mm-hmm. because there's, you can still pull a lot of cards to improve your hand, but you're not going to choose a dealer's ace for a reason. They're going to make a hand out of it. I, I just think it's, it's the same thing, man. You got guys like Jotham that are out there writing books that are essentially a blueprint for everything you do. You, you need to do everybody was going to, the people who read it are going to know it. And then when, why don't you execute? Why don't you take the next step? It's no different than walking in, getting the blackjack thing and then putting it in your pocket and never, they'll even let you have it out when you're sitting at the table. <laughs> So let's talk about that for a second, though, because that was kind of a question I had in regards to the setting up yourself on the front end um, in in negotiating. Is that because do you think that that's because um, people are just so excited about the opportunity that they're ready to jump in and they're like, oh, you know, they got the feel good, you know, situation going on and they're not worried about anything happening? Or is it maybe more like a concern that if they try to start negotiating all this stuff on the front end that, you know, maybe they're the, the opposing party is going to want to back out. Like in your experience, what do you think that's from? So uh, it happens for a bunch of different reasons. You just named two of them. Sometimes it happens because everybody hopes things are going to go well and they, yeah. they have a, a, a positive view of the outlook and they don't appreciate the potential that could, that could rear their ugly head and, and screw them. And they don't want to think about it. And there's all sorts of, psychological issues sometimes that go along with that. Another is exactly what you just said. If I, ne- I need this job or I want this investment, if I negotiate too hard, they're going to pull, pull back. So sometimes when, I, when somebody actually talks to me about that, I said, okay, well, that's a risk. It's absolutely a risk. 
do you want to go into business with somebody who's going to, you're not going to give you what you, what you need and could, could, could increase your chances of risk. That's your opportunity. You know, that's your choice. And so there are other reasons as well, but those sort of the two, the two biggest, and it depends on who the people are. Sometimes they're together. Sometimes somebody's concerned about both of them mm-hmm. um, and, and they go into a relationship and then sometimes it works out really well. And a lot of times they're calling me a few years later and it didn't work out well. I think that if you're dealing in, obviously feel free to correct me if I'm wrong. I think that it's a different dynamic when you're dealing with an entrepreneurial company that's going to seek outside investment versus being in an entrepreneurial company that's self-funded and never plans on taking money from the outside. Because, and hear me out, when you're going through the institutional process, you're constantly getting valuations on the company. Your financials are almost always up to date and all of that. But let's just say that you have that company that you know started a few years ago, took off and is, is making a considerable amount of money. And now you got to go through valuation and it just becomes another hoop or a headache or whatever for somebody in that situation to go through. And I think it makes it very easy to say, yeah, I'll get to it. I'll get to it. I'll get to it. Cause you know that, in order for you to do the right thing that you promised up front, that it's going to, it's going to create a lot of, a lot of work for starters. It's not even a money issue as much as it is anything else. So there's some truth to what you're saying, particularly in a, in a, in a wholly owned business by an individual, right? I mean, and also usually that individual is pretty dynamic and doesn't want the hassle. It may not be the actual spending of the money, but it's time. You're right about that, but there are ways to promise people things um, that, that they don't require all the extra amount of time. So for example, um, somebody says, okay, you'll be, you're entitled to 5% of my company to use the example before, you know, and you sign a contract at the beginning and it says 5% of the company doesn't really matter what it's worth because until an exit, there's no real valuation. Now you can do it in lots of ways where you promise somebody some phantom equity, and then you do have to do a valuation every year because the individual isn't the, the person who owns a company doesn't want to give up any equity in the company, but you can do it in an LLC, for example, and give somebody profits interest where they have no control over anything. All they do is get uh, uh, an ec- they get they get a percentage of the equity on the, on the exit, for example. So, but often what happens in those companies is you have very dynamic individuals who are building it, right? That's how they're building their own entrepreneurial company, and they don't. And then the people who join them may be loyal, and they may be the right hand right hand uh, man or woman for them uh, for a long time, but they don't feel given the relationship with this dynamic individual who always makes the calls that they can really negotiate, and the dynamic person's like you know, the person who owns a company is often like, I'm not doing anything more than I have to. Um, if you stay here long enough, um, you know, you're going to make out. But the problem is two, three, five, seven, eight years later, sometimes you stay there a long time, um, but, but things don't work out for one reason or another. And, and, and that's, so that's a tension you have in, 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 in wholly owned companies. But if you're the person who wholly owns the company, a lot of people in that situation, they want to remain 100% in control. Right. That's who they are. That's the dynamic. They won't take outside investment. Right. Because that's the danger when they do that. And they don't have to have any protection because they have they have the company. It's 100 percent theirs. There's nothing to protect themselves against other than maybe people they do contracts with in business. And so there's an interesting that's that's an interesting dynamic that happens as well. And so the person working for the dynamic individual who wholly owns the company, you know, has a decision to make. Do I reduce my risk and go somewhere else? Do I stay there? Uh, do I negotiate? How do I negotiate? And, and a lot of that's context dependent because people are different. You know, mindsets are different. Uh, and, um, and, and, and the person in that situation should really have some advisor helping them. 
Because when you're in a situation like that, you're really good to bounce ideas off somebody. doesn't have to be a lawyer. Could be a lawyer who's experienced, but could be a very experienced friend, could be you know a, a consultant, someone who's been there before um, can help you out. Yeah, you know, I think, and I mean, everything you're saying, I agree with completely. I think the reason why this is so germane to our industry is because the equity conversation between an agency principal and a high-level producer or a group of high-level producers is, is, is the one that needs to happen more often than any other conversation because that's those are the golden handcuffs that we as agency principals have the ability to use as a tool to keep our best producers with us, right? If you, if you have the ability to give someone equity in, in, in many times I see it in stair-step capacity where they have a certain amount of ownership. I'll, I'll just explain to you what I typically see and then you can run with this, okay? Right. So what I've seen in the past personally was when my, my book of business got to $500,000 in revenue, not, you know, not premium because we only talk in revenue on this show, you know, 500,000 in revenue then my employer would give me equity in that book. And they had first right of refusal, if I chose to leave, to buy that back from me. It would be worth whatever the revenue is. It would be worth one times revenue. And they would pay me interest-free at 20% a year over five years. Okay? That was the deal they cut. I was okay with it. It was free money to me. I didn't really think through it, but... Looking back at it, it's like, why am I, why am I financing this for them? Why am I only getting one X of revenue when the value of that book is probably anywhere from two to four times revenue, depending on, you know, how they operate? And then from that point, if we got to a million in revenue, then we were able to convert that into enterprise equity in the entire operation, as opposed to just our book of business. I can tell you that compensation plans in our industry can get really, really crazy really, really quick if they're not careful. And you got a lot of agents out there that are armchair lawyers that go and, and read a couple of blogs online or whatever, and they think they have it all figured out. And there's a whole lot of that, that can be unwound from that, not the least of which is a huge tax liability for that person that you want to give the, uh, the, the equity to if you don't set it up right from the beginning. So there's a lot of stuff there that, that you can unpack, but I wanted you, you know, I mean, and I'm sure you've, you've seen this happen. I mean, I, I'd be shocked if you didn't see disputes inside the insurance industry, but that equity discussion and how you're going to handle it with your high, high performing team members is a big one. And it's a big one that most agency principals don't ever want to have. They just, they, they feel like what you said, this is my baby. I built it. I took all the financial risk. You know, I, I can tell you from my perspective, I started my firm in the dining room of my house with a desk and no money, you know, and so it I, I can understand how people can be influenced as you ramp it up and you make more money and make more money. All of a sudden, you've got an asset that's worth several million dollars. And in your mind, you're all you're remembering is all those nights where you stayed up late, you know, just hitting the grind. Until you know your kids are asleep, you're missing practices, everything you said you would never do, and now all of a sudden you've got somebody or a couple of people that come in and you know they do a great job, but they wouldn't have done that good if you wouldn't have built them the the, the platform for them to operate off of. So you take a hundred percent credit for it. That to me is one of the biggest flaws in our industry, and I'm, I'm speaking directly to my peer group when I hear this. 
Yes, every single one of us got our organizations to a certain point, but you also would have been stuck there if you didn't have other people help you push it forward. We just seem to have real selective memory on that part of it when the time comes to actually reward those people for what they did. Well, so you've just said it better than I ever could. And it's not just an insurance. It happens in real estate deals. It happens at publicly traded companies. It happens to entrepreneurial companies all over. Um, the idea that when something becomes valuable, it had to have been all me. And that's where the fights happen. Um, because turns out, I think you're a better uh, building a better agency uh, in your case, if you reward those people around you. You're not giving them control of the company. You still have control, but they should have an equity play in it. And, they, and that drives them often to build a better book of business, to work harder, even as they get older and their business is good. And so, but that's something that is so missing and results, results in so many disputes, right? It's not just the, uh, the terrible ones where the founder stood up at the wedding uh, or, the, or the wrongdoer stood up at the wedding or the wrongdoer was from, uh, you know, your family. It often happens in exactly who the people you just spoke to. There's a fight between, um, between the, the principals and those have been working for them for a long time and have held them to help them to build their company. So I couldn't agree with you more that it happens. And I couldn't agree with you more that if you thought about it in the, the bigger picture, it would be much better to give those individuals equity and protect it and, and, and build your company because, you know, your company might be two or three times larger as a result. Mm -hmm. you, the, but the problem is, the perspective is any of those people you're speaking to, like yourself, you've built a company to however big it is. Let's just call it X. And your perspective is that I built it to X. And if you have this view that it's all you, you built it to X. But if you perhaps uh, you perhaps uh, had a, a better um, equity plan for everyone in this example, uh, where there were more protection and you gave them a return, you might have 2X or 3X. You build it bigger. The problem is psychologically, people can't envision that, right? They don't think about that way. Um, I think and, it goes back to what their mindset is on everything. You're either having an abundance mindset or a scarcity mindset. And too many people who sit in my chair have a scarcity mindset, which honestly is kind of mind boggling to me because you would think that if you're an entrepreneur, most of the time it's ready, fire, aim. You know what I mean? Like we're off to the races and we're making things happen and we don't have time to, to think about all of the other stuff. So, I mean, I could see people making mistakes along those ways, just because they're sloppy, because they're that's just the nature of the entrepreneur. You know, they're just so driven. They're doing the next thing, doing the next thing, doing the next thing. You know, I, I just feel like that our industry needs to shift. The insurance industry needs to move as a whole as much as possible more towards abundance, because the reason we lose good talent is because we don't have the same mechanisms that other people have. We had a young lady that worked with us um, two years, three years ago as an intern, did an awesome job. And I'm saying this as my intern this summer is literally sitting there hanging on every word <laughs> that I'm saying to hear how this thing turned out. She did awesome. She was great. I really wanted her to come work with us after the fact. And she would have had an awesome opportunity to do that. She actually, it, it never got to the point where we were going to make an offer. Part of this has to do with the fact she simply wanted to prove she could be independent and move to a completely different state to take a job so that she could show her independence to her parents and other things. But on the flip side, I started hearing about like all of the benefits that this extremely entrepreneurial software company gave her. Like, 
they gave her $10,000 as a bonus to just go take a trip for as long as she needed to before she started just to make sure her head was clear when she started. Then you start talking about the different types of stock options she was going to have and everything else. And I'm thinking to myself, my goodness, if the insurance industry thought like that, we would never have a problem recruiting the top talent. Not once. Mm -hmm. But we don't think that way, right? We're still having a hard time getting our head wrapped around flexible hours or flexible payment or remote work. The only reason we're where we're at right now is because COVID forced us to do that. That's it, right? But it just... It blows my mind that we have such a scarcity mentality in our industry and agency owners can't get past that. But you know what, Jotham? I love it as I talk out of the other side of my mouth because those are the agencies that are going to be way below market value. They're not going to get the same multiple. And guys like me that want to build an empire are just going to go in and gobble them up left and right. Yeah, you would do a the classic roll up, right? And you could put a, you can give somebody, the thing is you can give somebody an equity in your company. It's called phantom equity, right? It's also talk about it in my book. You could give them without giving them any shares at all. That does require valuations throughout a period of time, but you can, you can mimic whatever that startup, that software startup did. And I can tell you the software startups and the hardware startups and the biopharmaceuticals, they compete against each other for talent, right? And so um, if, if, if your industry or your company, let's say, wanted to do that, it's easy, to, easy enough to set up a program that rewards people, not just for their commissions, uh, but also for their equity. Remember, in a lot of these big companies, even the EVP of sales or the sales teams, the most sophisticated, are getting paid double, if you will. They're getting their commissions and then they get equity in the company as, as well. So, um, and you can mm-hmm. clearly set that up in your industry if you wanted to. Um, and it, it, over a bigger, longer period of time, you've actually pointed it out. The people who are, 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 are progressing, like your company, I guess, and others like you, will be able to do the roll-ups of the ones that will be behind over time. I mean, it doesn't happen immediately, but over time, as you put in, um, uh, you know, you grow, you're able to grow your company with these tools, um, that's what will happen. But, you know, frankly, even though you've said that, there's a lot of people that don't want to make that change. They're happy with whatever they are and scarcity, and it was good for them. It was good for their father. It was good for their father's father. And that's who they are, and, and they won't change. Um, Everybody keep doing that so that we can continue to feast. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> well, I mean, listen, if you have a – here's the thing, though. It translates 100% to client experience too, right? If you have that scarcity mentality and you're tight, you're not willing to invest in relationships and give, you're going to be a horrible partner for your clients as well. And, I mean, that's one of the things, man. Anybody who has ever – you know, walked into my operation, talked to me, experienced me speaking publicly or whatever else, they will understand very, very quickly that I am the furthest thing from a scarcity mindset. I'm probably overabundant in my thought process, but there are just going to, yeah, I mean, it's just, I think about all of the tools that we give our client, right? I I tell people every time on the podcast, Our job is not to sell products, it's to solve problems. And you can't solve problems unless you get to know people. And people is what this business is about. It's very cliche. I don't like to talk about it as much because it's kind of like the buzz that everybody talks about, but then nobody executes on it. And so when when people hear things like we provide a full-blown risk management, a, a custom built 
risk management center for each one of our middle market clients, where we give them the ability to warehouse information, certificate compliance of subcontractors, sign subcontractor agreements in the cloud, you know, remote job site evaluation, all of this stuff. And it's not cheap for us to do that. But I also don't lose business, right? My close rate is almost 100%. And our retention is almost 100% because we invest in the relationship. And that's the problem. We think it's wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. We're going to go in. We're going to close the deal. We're going to do as little as possible. We may show up six months in, maybe probably closer to nine months because we're really hoping you're going to hire us again next year, but we need the renewal information so we can go get quotes. They're not investing in the relationship year round and they show up with a stewardship report. What does it do? All the stewardship report does is say, here's all the crap we've done for you that we didn't tell you we were doing year, year round. And we're going to use this as a justification for you to hire us again, when in reality, it's all a bunch of BS and fluff that's gone in there. I'd rather my clients just say, wow, I really enjoy working with these people. I've never seen anything like what they provide. And they make me feel like I'm the most important client every single time I interact with them. That's it. If you could do those things, what's my return on investment? I don't know. I can't tell you what my return on investment is, but I can tell you what my year over year organic growth is. And I know that it goes, it ties back to the fact we don't have a scarcity mindset. We treat our clients right. And as a result, they refer people to us. So, I mean, you talked about it before when, when you're and dealing two, with how to... Ne- two while we were down in Key West, client referrals. Yeah, yeah. so did I. was I. sitting like, on the back of a golf cart. Yeah, we were, literally, we were literally talking about it when we landed in Tampa yesterday that we couldn't believe how little our email lit up while we were, we were at the, the uh, conference that we were at. Mm-hmm. But the stuff we did get, was new business opportunities from our existing clients because we take care of them. Mm-hmm. I will tell you this, people listening. I've I don't I can't think of a time that I've even asked my clients for a referral in the last 10 years. Don't even have to ask anymore. They just automatically do it. it it's because you're good client focused, customer focused. I mean, it's the same in my business. I don't I don't think I've ever asked for a referral, but we get them all the time because we have happy clients that we're we pay attention to. And and I suspect a lot of those customer clients you're talking about, you you actually visit personally. That's oh, all some, the time. Definitely. Yeah. I mean you it, that, that the face-to-face discussion is so much more is so much more valuable than something via via Zoom or or via um, any other way, telephone calls. Um, email, it's not the same as per- personal visits. And in fact, I have a point in my book, and I've d- done this many times, I've had people actually fly across the country. I've said, you've got to negotiate this deal, show up there if you can. They couldn't do it during COVID a lot. But but mm-hmm. otherwise, before COVID and after COVID, I've literally multiple times, I, I've said to clients, because that's what I do, but I said to, I said to clients, you, you want to negotiate A, B, and C, show up there and do it. Because the ask is statistically, First of all, people feel much better, but statistically, your ask that you're going to make is much more likely to be met if you're there in person speaking with them. And so, uh, I, I can't I, I can't tell you how much I agree with with um, with what you're talking about. Well, the other thing I hear all the time is, "Well, my clients really don't want to see me that much." Guess what? It's because every time you go see them, you're trying to sell them something. The reason I can walk in and and get a meeting with anybody I need to see in my book of business at any time is because they get value out of every single conversation we have when we meet. We're not in there trying to say, oh, 
I can sell you something to fix this problem or fix this problem or fix, fix this problem. Yeah, I could sell my clients a cyber liability prob- uh, policy if they don't have it. But if you're missing the remote work cyber cyber policy in your employee handbook, what good is it? Like COVID hit, you got a lot of people that were dealing with COVID infected computers. Like they just grabbed the first laptop they could find laying around the house. And they were now all of a sudden connected to their, their company's intranet doing business with no security software or anything else. Yeah, I could go get you insurance to cover you in the event something like that happens. But at the end of the day, do you really want to be inconvenienced by it? I mean, you need the cyber policy anyhow, but why wouldn't I sell you a cyber policy? But before I do that, make sure you're the best underwriting risk possible by having all the policies and procedures in place so I can then take those and represent them to an underwriter that you're best in class and get you the, the ultimately what amounts to the best deal and premium. Like this just seems so easy to me. And maybe it's because I came from the grocery industry, you know, begging people to spend a hundred bucks so I can make a dollar. I got in the insurance world, man. This thing's a breeze. <laughs> yeah, well, you're, you're you're seeing the big picture on all these things, so as opposed to the scarcity thing. Close the deal, move to the next one, close the deal. Right? You're you're yep. looking at things from a much large, uh, a much bigger perspective. So, absolutely. Well, listen, we have beat this to death, man, and I want to be respectful of your time, but I want to let all of our listeners know, as I always do, when we have someone who's written a book on the show, I'm going to pick up a dozen copies of Jotham's book. And if you'll email David at killingcommercial.com with the subject line, negotiate. Listen, people, if you've done this before and you haven't gotten a book, it's because you didn't follow my directions. I love y'all, but your mama didn't raise you right if you can't follow directions and it's not my job to teach you. So listen to what I just said. David at killingcommercial.com in the subject line. I don't care what you put in the body of the email, but in the subject line, put negotiate. David, why do you want me to do that? Because I can sort my email by subject in that way. Every single one that says negotiate is who I'm shipping a book to. So quit huffing paint and follow directions and get this right. You get a free book out of it. You can learn to negotiate like a CEO. And with any luck at all, you'll run out and you'll execute some of this stuff and it'll change your financial future. If they are not lucky enough to be one of the first 12, or they don't follow directions, Jotham. I may question their ability to read, but they probably can listen to it. Where do they find this stuff? Uh, Amazon, you go to amazon.com, put in negotiate like a CEO, or you can put in my name, Jotham Stein, and it'll come right up. You can buy an electronic copy or a, or a, a paperback version. You can also go to the website, negotiate like a CEO book.com. Uh, and uh, and there will be information on me on the book and uh, and, and um, um, you know some of these vignettes. There are some stories there, and uh, if they like that uh, website, negotiate like a CEObook.com, and they like the book, they can press the button there and goes to Amazon. So two ways. Perfect. Nice. Perfect. Well, listen, man. I mean, I think you came into this conversation kind of wondering how it was going to go. I think we freaking nailed it. To be honest I with you, solid. I think. Yeah, I think everything that, that we talked about is 100% relevant to our industry. People were negotiating every day. 
every single day. We're negotiating with, and this is exactly what I told Jotham before we got on. We're negotiating with claims adjusters. We're negotiating with underwriters. We're negotiating with our team members. We're negotiating with prospects. Heck, we're half the time. If you're in the grocery store, you're negotiating with your kid as to whether or not they can have the candy at a checkout line. So if you want to, if you want to learn how to negotiate like a CEO, pick up a copy of his book today until next time we'll catch you guys later see ya cool you've been listening to the power producers podcast you can follow killing commercial insurance on facebook and youtube and if you want to take your game to the next level next level check out our book the extra two minutes and our website killingcommercial.com 